There's an estimated 50 to 60 million people that are diagnosed with anxiety and depression every year in this country. And two thirds of them, and we know about two thirds just based on claims data, two thirds of them do not get it treated. I mean, think about that. Imagine if I give you that same stat about someone with cancer of 10 million people a year have cancer and two thirds of them don't get it treated. Like that would be crazy. You would say like, that's not possible. Why, why would anyone do that? I have this, we had this premise from the beginning of why is mental health treated any differently than physical health? And then when you look at the data that not only should it be treated the same, it, it literally is the same. This is Undiluted, the show about the amazing founders and companies who've used government R&D grants, contracts, and sales to build their products, grow their companies, and keep their equity. We are Katie Person and Gene Kesselman from MIT and Jeff Orzer from FedScout. And on today's show, we talk with Chris Malaro, founder of Neuroflow, about how his experiences with mental health in the Army, a chance encounter in business school, and federal funding led to a solution that's helping bring mental health care to millions. I applied to seven schools and it was the only one I got into, so it was a pretty easy decision. I got waitlisted at University of Texas. I found out later that I reviewed my essays afterwards and um, didn't proofread and left Wharton in my UT essay. So I'm proud I still got waitlisted. <laughs> so that was pretty funny. I mean, I had a 2.8 undergrad GPA and under 700 GMAT. I um, was not your premier MBA candidate. I wasn't SF or a Ranger, like special ops guy. I founded a nonprofit when I was in the army that raised close to a million dollars supporting soldiers' education, gave them scholarships and stuff like that, which was pretty cool. It's called Things We Read. And I think that was like the thing that got me over the hump to get in. But moved to Philly. I'm from Long Island. My wife's family's from the Poconos, so we're semi-close to home. We're close enough to be convenient, but not so close where they could just drop in. Yeah, it's good to be home. I was able to go to undergrad for free at West Point first person to graduate in college from my family. So the you know, we came from a background where college wasn't going to be an option unless I took out a bunch of debt or went to a community college or something, which, you know, the, I, something stuck with me of wanting to go to a four-year university and, and get out of my hometown and so forth. And so I was fortunate enough to get into West Point and I don't come from a military family. So my dad was like, you're doing so well in high school. What do you mean you want to go in the army? But that, that's, you have so many options. And I said, dad, look, let's talk about it. Look at, do your research and let's come back to the table. And he did. And he goes, I was wrong. This is amazing. You need to do this. And that was in 2006. I graduated in 2010 and I never looked back in the army. There's hindsight's 2020. I look back at my platoon leader time and I don't think there could have been better training to be a founder and entrepreneur than to be a leader of soldiers, especially when deployed. I mean, my, my company, Neuroflow now is just under a hundred people. But a year ago, we were 40 people. We were the platoon size element operating with a finite budget. And we had to figure stuff out without people giving us directions. Like what else is a platoon leader doing on patrol uh, with no radio comms back to you know your fob and you need to figure it out. So I think it's a, it really has been from like a mission standpoint, developing our culture here, our values, asking people to lead with 
proposals, right? Like just everything in terms of we have after action reviews at the company for when things work and don't work. And I owe a lot to personally my experience in the military to where the company is today. And now it's cool to get to go back and work with them from an innovation lens. So yeah, I have to ask because my dad was very skeptical when I told him I was joining the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you think turned your dad around on the West Point? My dad loved history. He read a lot of history books for some reason. And I think it was that when he learned more about the history of West Point, when he looked at the list of graduates from West Point. Again, we don't come from a military family, so he was deathly afraid. And I was talking about applying to West Point in 2003 and four. Iraq just kicked off. Afghanistan had been going on. So he was like deathly afraid of his only son going off and going to war especially for someone that has never been exposed to that. But then he learned about there's other jobs in the Army that you can do that are not combat-related. Joke's on him because I went field artillery and deployed overseas anyway, but that's neither here nor there. So I was wondering if you could help. Like, where, where did the inspiration for NeuroFlow come from? Um, so we, um, when I was an artillery officer, we deployed overseas to Iraq, and we were in the southern part of Iraq we did not do an artillery mission at all. Based on the time when we were there, we were effectively an infantry platoon. We were doing route clearance, counter IDF or indirect fire on the base. So we were just patrolling, doing security and so forth. And in that world, over a course of a year, we had close to 300 combat patrols under our belt. Yet every day you were on 365, 24-7, no holidays you're amped at this certain level where adrenaline is pumping and you can't turn it off for your own sake and for your buddy's sake to your left and your right. I got off easy. That was my first and only deployment. I had a number of soldiers that I get to call colleagues. They were on their fifth or sixth deployment and they had families at home. I was single when I was deployed. I I don't know how people deployed with families back home. I had no one to care about but myself, right? If I had a girlfriend or a spouse or kids, it would be an entirely different world. So I, I can't entirely empathize with the, what they were feeling and how they were going through, but I can empathize. And, and I tried to, when I was leading them, I tried to do that. Anyway, long story short, we came back home, fortunately, uh, with no loss of life, but some people had physical injuries and were seeking medical help for that. And as anyone that has deployed overseas knows that when you come back home, they do a medical readiness assessment on you. Part of that assessment is mental health oriented. And fortunately, I had a soldier that identified as having sleep issues and depression. Now I say fortunately because there's nothing wrong with identifying yourself with needing support. In fact, it's a good thing because then you could go get that support. So he was referred to a therapist and given medications and provided all the support. And our unit, a few months after being back home, our unit lost him to his battle with depression and he took his own life. I remember the battalion, the brigade doing an investigation and it turned out that he never actually followed up with his therapist appointment. He never filled his medications and no one followed up with him to say, Hey, how are things going? Are you improving? The physicians involved never did what we call measurement-based care to say like, okay, you're moderate on the depression scale today. In a month, are you still moderate? Are you severe? Are you mild? Um, That gap in care is a tragedy. And, And frankly, I think it's 
my biggest leadership failure to date. I guess when you look at that, you think, damn, if there was ever a time where we could have mitigated that risk and avoided it, it, it was a situation like that. So I wish that, Jeff, I wish that I could say that I woke up the next day and had this light bulb moment for Neuroflow, but that would be too cool I, that didn't happen. So it was years later at business school, I was in a healthcare class, it was a business of healthcare and it was taught by a psychiatry professor, a neuroscience professor, and was learning about these different care models that existed out there, these different modalities that were coming out recently and how technology could play a big part in it. And that's where I thought like, wow, I almost had this out-of-body experience where I remember it was a jolt to the past where I was remembering being at Fort Hood with my unit and thinking, I think this, this sort of thing in principle could have helped. I didn't really know what like more descriptive than that. And in that experience, I remember it was my first semester at business school, Adam, who's now my co-founder was a bioengineering PhD. So he wasn't in the business, he wasn't getting his MBA. He was just happened to be in this class. We met each other. We could get more into that story, but that was the impetus for it. That was the inspiration. That's wonderful. Do you remember having that light bulb? Yeah. In that class, because part of the class was thinking about opportunities in, in healthcare. Now at the same time, it's crazy how the universe works with bringing things together. So at the same time as that was going on, so I went to business school with the idea of not really knowing what I wanted to do. I thought entrepreneurship was a path I wanted to take. I also wasn't entirely sure if I could do it. And so I also recruited for consulting. I spent a summer at McKinsey, which was great. Um, but my first semester, I thought I knew I wanted to do entrepreneurship. So I was like in exploratory mode. And University of Pennsylvania was hosting a startup competition. It was called the Y Prize competition. The premise of the competition was to take a technology that Penn had invented, create a business plan around it, and then you could win $10,000. So I'm in class. We have to think about gaps in healthcare, specifically mental healthcare. I'm remembering back to the days in the army and this the Y Prize competition was using a brain functioning technology to detect depression. So I'm like, oh, this is it. We can use this technology to identify depression in people proactively to get them support. And that was a light bulb moment. Now, what's funny is Adam and I said, let's $10,000, let's submit a business plan to this Y Prize. We had a week to the deadline, so we pulled like an all-nighter for five nights. It was a blast doing it. And we didn't even make it past the first round. I think it was just like, look, at we still have the submission. So it's funny to look back at it. And we just didn't know what we were doing. We, we threw something together in five days that we thought was really great, but it wasn't. But what we did learn in that experience was, one, we had a lot of fun doing it. And it was, it was invigorating. Two was we thought there was a real opportunity to innovate in that area and that there wasn't really a, a big company that was doing that. So what I think it demonstrated to us was there was a huge market opportunity with tons of people that struggle with this, not just the military, right? That's the other thing that became clear was that these gaps in mental health were not unique to the army. 
but there's tens of millions of people, civilians every year that struggle. So it was a huge market opportunity that wasn't being addressed adequately. And who else better to do it than me, given my background and that I was here in this moment. And from that moment on, we committed to each other that we would continue going down this route until after my McKinsey internship. And then my second year of business school, I got the McKinsey offer. I told them what I was working on. I asked them to delay my start date a year so I could work on this. And I, I never went back because this you know, started taking off. McKinsey was always very supportive of that. And I have a lot of friends still at the firm and consider myself lucky getting that summer experience. I learned a lot, but there's nothing else like starting your own company. It's just been even the bad days here, and there's a lot of them, nothing ever seems to be easy. It's just like a rule of thumb. Don't ever think something's gonna be easy. And I think if you anchor yourself there, then you'll be better. Even those days, it's incredibly fun and invigorating and rewarding. I like to say this is my, my second platoon, which is um, it's probably corny, but it's fun. Oh, you're 100 people, you're coming up on company? Yeah, that's right, <laughs> exactly. Uncharted territory for me. I don't know, <laughs> this, is, this is new leadership challenges. So I love this idea that you, that even though you lost the business plan competition, you were so excited about it that you went forward. So what was so compelling that you kept with this idea? Well, I think, one, I, I think it was just an ego thing. I hated losing any competition and I'm like, I, I'm not going to end my entrepreneur career 0-1. That doesn't sound like cool at all. <laughs> that does, no, we're not doing that. It was, I think part of it was an ego thing, which... You can argue there's right and wrong things. I'm sure a lot of our customers who are psychotherapists would say, that's not healthy. You don't want to do it for that reason. But, oh, well, the truth is that that was part of the reason. The, and then, but from a business standpoint, you really did look at the market. And there's an estimated 50 to 60 million people that are diagnosed with anxiety and depression every year in this country. And two thirds of them, and we know about two thirds just based on claims data, two thirds of them do not get it treated. I mean, think about that. Imagine if I give you that same stat about someone with cancer of 10 million people a year have cancer and two thirds of them don't get it treated. Like that would be crazy. You would say like, that's not possible. Why, why would anyone do that? I have this, we had this premise from the beginning of why is mental health treated any differently than physical health? And then when you look at the data that not only should it be treated the same, it, it literally is the same. So someone that has depression and diabetes, not only um, do they have two issues, but their diabetes is actually worse from an outcome standpoint when they're comorbid with depression. And if you think about it, that makes sense. Someone that's depressed eats less healthy, works out less, takes care of themselves less. It exasperates the issues with diabetes. And then when your diabetes gets worse, you have worse symptoms, you're more depressed. And so you get into this vicious cycle that gap in care, I think, really became obvious to us of there's such an opportunity to bridge that. And it's tens of millions of people. So there's a big market opportunity from a Remember, I'm at business school. So I'm thinking yeah, that's where my head's at. And from a industry standpoint, there, none of the big players were addressing this. Mental health was one of the few 
specialties that had not been innovated in. Even to this day, people that don't use Neuroflow are doing these things like assessments on paper and pen. Think about that. We have all these advancements in oncology, in diabetes, in primary care, in, in women's health, in men's health. Mental health is still done like it was 50 years ago. And so that was another reason. And then lastly, my personal experience, like looking back on that, I don't want to speak for Adam too much, but I know Adam has had personal ties with mental health with his family. And I think if every one of your listeners to this podcast really reflects and looks in the mirror, if not them themselves, they know somebody that struggled with mental health. And so it was just too personal to not keep going with it. So it was easy to look past that. I, to me, that failure is not even a failure. It was a great learning opportunity. Three months later, we won the business plan competition, won $10,000, and then we went on a winning streak. We won $180,000 of free money for business plan competitions, not just at Wharton, but Philadelphia region, a few nationally. It was awesome. That's how we funded the company originally. So that's amazing. How many, how many business plan competitions did you enter? Uh, I don't know offhand, like figure on average, they were about $10,000 a piece of winning. We, yeah. And I'm pretty sure we maybe were batting like 900 after that. Like I've, we went nine for 10 or whatever. And I think, I don't really think that was on me particularly or Adam particularly. I think that we were just able to put together a story that made sense based on the things that I spoke about earlier, the market size, no one was addressing it, those things. And it, I think the, fortunately for us, the light bulb moment started going on for the rest of the world. Sometimes they say it's better to be lucky than it is good. If we started five years earlier, I think we would have been too early. Policies didn't change yet. They didn't have mental health parity laws yet. There wasn't reimbursement codes. People weren't talking about it today we would have been too late starting this, right? There's these things have been, especially with COVID, people talk about mental health more than ever. So in that year and a half time frame that we were doing those competitions, we learned a lot. We built a small team. Employee number one, Sam DeLucia, is still at the company today. Like he's crazy. He joined us like when, when we were literally a PowerPoint slide. It's pretty cool. That's amazing. So you've, you've talked about the business plan. Can you share a little bit about what Neuroflow does, you know, we've talked a little about the market, but what is, what is Neuroflow? What we did back then and what we do today is slightly different. We made a pivot, but I like to say we're not a behavioral health company. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of behavioral health services companies out there. There's a lot of telehealth companies, teletherapy. There's a lot of apps that have like treatment modalities on them. And those are behavioral health companies. And there are some really great companies out there, a lot of which we partner with and we work with. I like to say that we're a behavioral health integration company. And what I mean by that is we are a software company that works with non-behavioral health settings like primary care, pain management, oncology, OBGYN, on helping those clinics integrate mental health assessments, identification, and care management in their settings. So basically think about this. You go to a primary care doctor, they screen you for mental health, paper and pen usually. Let's say you score moderate on depression. 
Uh, Jeff, look, like you're here for your annual wellness checkup. You scored positive on your mental health scale. I'm going to write you a, a two-week prescription and then send you to a psychiatrist. That's what happens today. Then you leave and there's no follow-up. They don't know if you went to your psychiatrist. They don't know if you took your antidepressants. They don't know if you're feeling better or worse, right? Any of that. That's the standard of care today. One, everybody that scores positive on depression doesn't necessarily need medication. Medication might be appropriate for some people, but for a vast majority of people, therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, just doing mindfulness, self-service sort of things is fine. But if you send everybody to a psychiatrist, you're giving people medications that maybe they don't need, that come with side effects that might make other things worse, and you're creating a bottleneck with psychiatrists, which we already have a shortage of, and that's why people have long wait times, they can't get into places. And so with Neuroflow, rather than doing that assessment in paper and pen, you'll do that assessment and a few other things in Neuroflow. We have a app, web-based and tablet. We assess uh, the population. And based on that assessment, we triage them, just like you would in the military. So we say, this person's high risk, moderate risk, low risk. And then we provide that to the physician and their staff as a clinical decision support recommendation. We'll say, based on this person, they scored positive on depression. They don't need to go see a psychiatrist, though. They probably just need a self-service tool. This person probably should go see a therapist versus this person is acute right now, possible suicide ideation. So we have algorithms that um, pick up suicide ideations and we'll flag those accounts to the physician's office. Once that person leaves the doctor's office, the technology follows up with that patient to do a weekly check-in with them. Hey, how are you doing? We'll do more assessments on them so we could track outcomes over time. If you notice, everything that we're doing is we're trying to fill in the gaps that otherwise didn't exist without technology. So we're extending the reach of the physicians. We're extending the reach of the the care managers, meeting people where they're at, making sure that we get them the right level of care. We do that today with 14 million users on the platform, with a number of partners have lowered the emergency room department visit by 34% because people feel like they're supported. They don't have to just go to the emergency room as like a knee-jerk reaction. They're like, you know what? Let me do my exercises. We've lowered the total cost of care for patients and we've improved the way that they feel. It makes the hair on my neck stand up when we read reviews from patients saying like, this app has changed my life, or I finally feel supported. We create habits for people, good habits, where every day I go in and journal, it's humbling to see that. I'm a big believer that technology isn't the panacea. It's not a silver bullet, especially in healthcare and mental health. Neuroflow's mission isn't seeking to replace therapists or replace doctors. There is a, a significant place for them in the continuum of care. What we think technology can do is help augment them to make them more efficient, to reach the right patients at the right time, and to be supportive to patients where they're at. So basically, you know, to use a military lingo, we think technology can be a force multiplier and mental health and help bridge that gap, which I think we're starting to show that, which is cool. With 14 million users, you 
it seems like there's a lot of proof in that yeah. in that number alone. So one thing that is really intriguing to me is you're doing you're dealing with such a personal issue, and mental health is still very personal. Mm-hmm. But you're delivering it through technology, and I and I've tried to get into like meditation apps many mm-hmm. times. I never stick with it. Yeah, I'm curious. What do you have any thoughts on why people are are sticking with Neuroflow? Yeah, I think so. First, uh, when you go to a doctor's office and they ask you, we've all been there where they ask those questions like, how many drinks of alcohol do you have a night? Or are you feeling down and depressed? I'm guilty of not answering those honestly because of the stigma associated with it. I don't want to tell the nurse, you know. And so there's a, there's kind of two factors there. One, it's the stigma. And two, depression, anxiety, substance use doesn't happen just on the day that I'm visiting my doctor. And so providing technology to them and meeting them where they're at, whether that's at home or work, where they feel most comfortable uh, and doing that more frequently, you have a better chance of identifying those issues and you have a better chance of them answering honestly because they feel comfortable in that setting. What we do is use AI algorithms to provide curated personalized content and resources to the individuals. So if you and I were both on Neuroflow and I was scoring positive on anxiety scales and you were scoring positive on depression scales and there was somebody that was scoring neither, I would get content and exercises relevant for someone with anxiety. You would get content for depression and the other user would get positive psychology, resiliency oriented the content. So it becomes more relevant for you. And when it's more relevant for you, you have a better chance of staying engaged. The last thing that we do, which is I think the coolest part, is we've gamified the system. So uh, not only do you get like reminders to go into your meditations, you get points and badges and stuff that can be redeemed uh, for gift cards in a marketplace that we have on the app. I use the app every day and I've earned Home Depot gift cards. Great. I needed I needed a you know new appliance or something. Go in ten dollar gift card, which is pretty cool. I love that idea. Yeah. yeah, making it making something to look forward to, not seen as a chore. Exactly. I think about going to the gym. It's been proven that if you go to the gym, you're going to be stronger. But not everyone goes. So how can we incentivize people to go to the gym, take care of themselves? This is like a mental health workout, if you will. I'm always delighted by pivot stories. So I think that it's so interesting to hear these evolutions of ideas. So you said there was a bit of a pivot between where you started and where you are. Can you yeah. share a little bit about where you started and what caused you to get to where you are? Sure. So going back to the pen technology that we were using, which was uh, this technology that, that analyzed brain imagery to reveal patterns. That's where the name Neuroflow first came from was looking at the brain, neuro, and then patterns, flow, like blood patterns. And we used EEG technology to do that and, and heart rate monitoring. So we used these biometric measures to measure anxiety, stress, and depression in individuals. It turned out that it worked really well. We have published research on it. I mean, it's really cool if I was sitting there using the app in a meditative state, you would see my stress level go down. Uh, in 2000. 17, right before graduation, one of the business plan competitions we won was South by Southwest, you know, the big tech conference. It was awesome. It was 1,200 people in the audience. And at this point, 
we just had a beta prototype of the product. We had never done a live demo. I had this brilliant idea of let me go on stage and do a live demo where I can wear the heart rate monitor and the EEG headset and I can show my stress score in real time. But we had never done that, let alone doing it live on audience in front of 1200 people. But I felt go big or go home, let's do this. We had one engineer at the time. So it was me, Adam, and the one computer engineer. And I'm like, what percent chance is that this doesn't work? And he said, eh, it's like 50-50 right now. I'm like, okay, could you like get that to like a 70% chance of working? All night he worked on it, the next morning, I'm like, what do you think? And I'm like, I'm leaving it up to you, you tell me. And he's F it, let's do it. So I'm like, all right, cool. So go on stage, introduce myself, go through the pitch, and I say, and if you go to neuroflowlive.com right now, you could see my stress score streaming in real time. And also we get like this amount of hits and they showed it on the big screen and you could see the spike of stress and anxiety coming over me. And it was just a really cool moment. And it was like, wow, this works. At least in theory, we haven't scaled up or anything. We don't have any users at this point. And it was three months after that, that we raised our first financing round, raised a million and a quarter dollars from venture, from angels and stuff, which we could talk more about. But the pivot happened a year after South by Southwest. And what we learned was we were starting to get customers. I remember there was a therapist that bought the first subscription ever in September of 2017 for $99 a month. And we were elated. We couldn't, couldn't believe it. We're like, this person's actually paying us money to use the technology that we built. And over the next year, we started getting more and more customers. And, and what we learned was, while the technology was cool and it had this sexy factor to it, it was more of a vitamin than a pill. And what I mean by that is it wasn't really solving a problem. It was a nice to have because all the feedback we ended up getting was, this the software is really cool the measurement's cool but it's not really changing the way i deliver care like as a therapist i'm able to tell people are stressed or anxious anyway i don't need this score to tell me that and it also required wearables and hardware and there's a barrier to entry that way so that was a really tough pill to swallow and we started looking okay like what could we do to do this pure software without the hardware and fortunately, that year, the Center for Medicaid and Medicare unbundled a new reimbursement code called Collaborative Care. And that code reimbursed primary care providers and non-behavioral health specialists to integrate behavioral health into their settings. And so we were like, wait a second, we developed this technology to help measure behavioral health Therapists are saying they don't need that help because they're, that's their profession. But primary care providers, that's not their profession. They can't identify mental health issues or the severity of it. So let's integrate this into that platform and they can now get, and there's a reimbursement for it. So once we did that, we went from selling $99 a month contracts to we sold our first $98,000 a year contract and I mean, you don't have to go to business school to know like the unit economics are a lot better on the second one. 
And we were like full steam ahead on that pivot. So we changed from being a more typical behavioral health company working with therapists to being a behavioral health integration company working with primary care providers. That's really interesting. But I love, I love doing this show because I get to hear all these stories about how people, what drove and, and the forces that caused the business to take the shape it did. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, interestingly, it was a change in reimbursement codes. Yeah, it was policy change. I mean, going back to it's better to be lucky, right? I don't even know how I came across that code. Like, I don't have a healthcare background. So it's, I think I got an email one day from like a newsletter that I signed up on saying, CMS unbundles collaborative care codes for, the psych- for psychiatry patients. What is this? So we started researching and digging in, and there we are. It's cool. That's cool. You, you, the, the funny thing is, that I, I bet thousands of people got that same email in their inbox and mm-hmm. said, "Oh, all right, mm-hmm. good to know." Yeah, right. And but for you, you were positioned and had the curiosity to be able to create something amazing from that. Yeah, which is hindsight's always twenty twenty, but it's it's just wild. It's crazy. It's a roller coaster, as you know. Since since you brought venture India, this is this show is called Undiluted because we're trying to explore alternative funding models. Yeah, I, could you give us the timeline of of funding? It sounds like there was the initial uh, pitch competitions. I'd love to just kind of understand what that sack has looked like over time. Yes, yeah, so we did the pitch competitions, which were just a lot of fun and it was like an it was a natural marketing campaign too because you won these competitions then they did a press release about it and your brand started getting out there then we raised our first dilutive funding round which was a price round with with investors then we were selling so as army vets we we were selling to uh the va and we couldn't quite at that time, get in the VA, they weren't willing to buy from a commercial standpoint. But we were too nascent of a technology, but they were willing and thought they were intrigued enough to do some research with it. With the VA, we applied to the National Science Foundation for an SVTR, and we were awarded a phase one SVTR, which I think it was like $250,000. And that was mind boggling money. Like that was all of the business plan competitions and then some, all in one shot. And that went well enough to get then a phase two. And that was our first foray into uh, government. Actually, you know what? That wasn't our, that was our second foray. There was another, so any entrepreneurs listening out there that are affiliated with universities, a student, there's a program called, it's also run by National Science Foundation and it's called i Are you familiar with i I love i Yeah. So we did i at Penn, the regional, which came with $3,000. And then we made it to the national i which came with $50,000. And what I love about the $50,000 is it's meant to travel, to go places, to meet customers or prospective customers. It's incredible. So the regional i was um, was not as difficult. It was when we went to the national one, they really drove home this aspect. And this is actually, this helped us identify that we needed to pivot because they would say, what's your technology do? And you would give them the pitch and they would say, no, no, no. No one cares about what, like the features. They just want their problem solved. What problem are you solving? And they would, they would really, I would argue sometimes we're like mean about it. Like it was like, I was in, it was like, I was like a private in the army again. It was, it was crazy. You'd be on stage and they would say, stop, stop right there. Stop. And I'd be like, okay, what? You're going down your list of features again. No one cares about those features. What problems are you solving? And it really 
forced you to think about not about your technology, but about your customer and the problems. And then they made you go out and talk to, uh, literally they, they had a saying, they said, get out of the office. So go meet, who do you think you're selling to? You think you're selling a therapist? Go talk to therapists in person. And don't ask them, don't try to sell them, ask them on their workflows and try to understand their problems. And it became, I think any successful business is successful because they're selling a solution to a problem as opposed to selling something. Think about like Apple does this, I think, masterfully, right? Their ads don't have a bunch of specs on what's in the computer and everything or, or the iPod. The iPod just says a thousand, phone, thousand songs in your pocket. And so the, I think it taught us and drilled into our head not to care about what I think is important for the product, but what our customers think, because ultimately they're they're paying it, right? They're paying for it. Yeah, iCore was transformative. So I recently did iCap, which was the Virginia version of iCore. Oh, nice. So, okay. Real much, my, my impression is much less intense. Yeah. But it was, God, I wish I had done it two years ago. I just did it. You, you said there was a, that's what helps you pivot. Yeah. As any, as if there was any like notion there I was. Yeah, I mean, like we were, the whole premise of the original Neuroflow product was to using biometrics enable therapists to see anxiety levels and depression levels. And we would talk to a bunch of therapists and some thought it was cool and thought it would be a neat, like it was gonna be less valuable for them actually and more valuable for their patients so that they could see it visualized and so forth. And that's how we made those initial sales. But no one was saying this is adding transformative value to my practice or this was saving me a bunch of time or saving me a bunch of money or it just everybody was like, yeah, that's cool. I don't know like if I'd be willing to pay for it, cool. But the, you know, and, and that was the light bulb moment of maybe I don't think the therapists are are our audience. If people are already at the therapist, they're already, like, they're not that two-thirds of the patients that are not getting care that we talked about. They're, they're already there. Now, there's some challenges with that that you can, we can dig into, but it wasn't, it wasn't what we were geared up to solve. Now, unfortunately, we didn't know yet about the codes that we pivoted to, so it was kind of a scary moment to be at because this oh shit moment came of, I don't think that this, that if we continue going down this road, this is not gonna work. But we have to figure out another path. And eventually we figured that out with the, with the primary care and so forth, but there was a couple months there at the company where we're like, we're literally walking down a path to our, to the death of the company if we continue down this. So um, glad we did ICOR. For sure. It's a great program. It is. So, so did ICOR come before you started having these VA conversations? Actually, I, I think that the VA conversations were probably part of the ICOR like interviews that we were doing. And then we started having the conversations with the VA and then got the NSF STTR. I'd love to unpack actually the VA experience a little bit because mm -hmm. I know I've had a lot of friends approach me with a medical concept and mm -hmm. say, hey, VA would be the perfect customer. And my experience has been that it's 
because it's such a fractionalized system with every VA hospital kind of its own ship, yeah. that VA is really tough to engage with. So I was, I was curious, can you share, how, how did you get in the door and how did you yeah. find the person to talk to and what, what was the experience like? So the way we, so one, you're absolutely right. The VA is a, at least the VA healthcare part of the system is a very decentralized system. You could be told to get lost by one VA, go 50 miles down the road in the next city and be welcomed with open arms and no exaggeration. And so what we were fortunate as students to be at the University of Pennsylvania and the University of Pennsylvania is academically affiliated with the Philadelphia VA, like the buildings are right next to each other. And a lot of the doctors that are in medical school and residency at Penn Medicine will do rotations at the VA. I was also a patient at the Philadelphia VA. So I had a lot of endpoints. So I would go for an appointment at the VA and then be like, all right, you're good. I go, doc, one second before we end, can I talk to you about this thing? And he goes like, what? And he goes like, are you selling me right now? I said, no, I'm just asking, do you think this would be valuable? And so we were able to make enough connections. I'm, I'm pretty sure they probably just felt bad for me at some times and we're, they said, I think there's enough here to at least do some research on it. Again, not to commercially buy it, but let's, like doing research would be fun if we can get funding. And that's uh, how we applied to the NSF STTR. Oh, interesting. So it was, so the, the VA research wasn't funded, but it validated the demand signal. No, the VA research was funded through the NSF STTR. I've actually never heard of that. Yeah, so we did that. Uh, so the, you know, STTR, sure. SBIR, we did the STTR through Penn because that STTR has to be done with an academic right. center. So we did that through Penn uh, to fund it at the VA. Smart. Yeah. yeah. So that's how we did the phase one. And then 12 months later, got a phase two. And then our next, and NSF is, NSF, in my experience, is a lot easier to work with the NIH. So we've also applied to NIH and we've never been granted NIH funding whatsoever. First SBIR I ever applied to was NSF. The feedback <laughs> was, uh, anyway, it was constructive. But do you have any thoughts on what you did that made you stand out? Yeah. And I also think that the NSF is more apt to try early science things like less developed, more nascent technologies and research. I think for us, the affiliation with Penn Medicine helped a lot. We had a really strong PI or principal investigator for the research. Adam, Adam was a co-PI. Adam and I are the exact same in certain ways, both mission oriented. We both work our tail off. We both um, really care about the mission, but then we're super different in a lot of ways. He is a detail oriented guy. Um, I am like big picture, high level. He likes getting into the weeds. Adam was in his PhD program, getting his bioengineering. And so he was a co-PI in that world. The psychiatry professor that I originally met that became our, our PI, and he's still an advisor to the company today, which is kind of cool. And so I think having that principal investigator that had those credentials that was able to give us some credibility helped a ton. I think the NSF, in our experience, wouldn't look at us unless we had that credit. Right, they're they're going to say, we're going to give you $250,000. We want to know that you're going to do something with it. And his name's Dr. Platt. Dr. Michael Platt helped us out big time. Nice. Yeah. 
my, my perception is that you pretty much need to have a PhD as your PI to get anywhere at NSF, just because, yeah. to your point, they are looking at such deep tech. Yeah. There's no way to evaluate it. The NSF isn't going to have the people on staff to evaluate this deep concept around mental health. They rely on very smart PhDs being the PIs to help them with their own validation. That's right. So Dr. Platt, we're so fortunate to get him on board and to just to take time out of his busy schedule to be the PI in the research was, again, lucky that we met him. So. Can you talk a little bit about the, while you were doing this STTR, like was all the money and time being directed at things that were directly relevant to the product? Yeah, we had this premise that we wanted to test with this. So the phase one of the NSF was a feasibility study. Could this technology actually be used in the clinical setting? Would it be used in the clinical setting? And then was it helpful? to be used in the clinical setting. So we already had the basic premise, we already had a beta version of the technology built. So it wasn't informing how to build it. It was informing how we would iterate on it and improve it, but it was informing like, okay, is what we built going to work and valuable? If yes, how can we improve it? If no, why not? And what do we need to change? I, ultimately, I think it showed that Yes, it was valuable enough to get a phase two to continue going down that route, which I think informed how the product was built, but it wasn't dependent on that, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So coming at sales, so we've got, it was 750 for NSF phase two? Yep, so that's right. So 750 is a good chunk to help take that beta into a more mature form. That's right. And then, so at that point, were you still working closely with the VA? Were they like your primary? Yeah, for phase two as well. Yeah. Yep. And we actually recently did an extension to phase two where you could do, if you're like, we, we want to test out these other things as well. So we were able to do that with the VA. And we're expanded the feasibility study to other VA hospitals as well. So VA has worked out great, especially as a research partner. They're difficult as a commercial partner for the decentralized thing that, that you mentioned earlier. So I think this is a, you know, one of the unique challenges of working with government is that there's a difference between funder and customer. Yeah, that's right. So can you share a little bit about what that experience has been, like the communities on each side and the conversations? You have these institutions that have a pool cap uh, meant to invest not for equity, but for innovation in their domains. So like National uh, Institute of Health, NIH, NSF, NASA even has some, Department of Defense has some, and they have these pools of money saying, look, we wanna go out there, we wanna make sure that we're always cutting edge, we're innovating, we're able to help the uh, you know, best research and technologies come to fruition for the civilian world as well. And so they have these pools of money that they can commit and dedicate to either doing early research, discovering new genes and stuff like that, all the way up to testing technology that's already developed with its feasibility. The technology, as far as the government's concerned, is measured on a rating scale of TRL, technology readiness level, of zero, which is you're inventing it or discovering it, 
all the way up to nine, which is it's commercially ready, available, ready to go. They usually don't want to start with zero and they're not going to fund something that's nine because they're, what's the point of it? And different agencies prefer funding at different levels. That's NSF, my experience is like around four, five, six. DOD doesn't want to necessarily test brand new things, but six, seven, eight. DARPA is more on the cutting edge. They want to test those really early new stage things. So you have those funding agencies and pool of money. NASA also needs to run its computer systems. DOD has all of its equipment and stuff like that. They are going to the market just like any other company or organization to purchase those resources and pieces of equipment. And so there's a customer lens of them actually purchasing a service or a product and all money is green. What I've learned is there's different colors of money in the government and they're not all created equal. And so the research funding money is a lot different than uh, customer contracted money. Uh, Ultimately, you want the funding research money to bridge to contract money. We've started to do that now, which is exciting. But the, you don't have to start with the government contracting for work right away. You could start in this funding round. Nice. So we've you know, talked about the NSF I-Corps, now the NSF SPIRs, STTRs. Mm-hmm. Any other big programs that have had a big impact on the company? Yeah, so we did an SBIR. So if those are not familiar, STTR, an SBIR is a very similar pool of funding. STTR is meant for research that's associated with academic institutions. And SBIR is meant for more pilots and uh, later stage research with commercial organizations. But the commercial organizations need to be small business, uh, small businesses. So SBIR stands for Small Business Innovation and Research. The Department of Defense has a bunch of SBIR dollars. The Department of the Army, Department of the Navy, and Department of the Air Force are allocated their own dollars from the DOD bucket. And the Air Force has a office called AFWorks, which I think they've rebranded recently to Air Force Ventures. Uh, But we were fortunate to get introduced to AFWorks at the next year South by Southwest conference. We were at the Army Futures Building and I met an Air Force captain that said, you should apply to AFWorks. I go, what's AFWorks? He said, oh, it's this cool program where you can do a phase one for $50,000 to learn, to test out your pitch to see if there's a willing buyer in the Air Force. And you have three months to do that. And if you find someone willing to sign a memorandum of understanding, you can apply to a phase two, which can be up to a million and a half dollars. And I'm like, is that like a grant? And he said, no, this is not a research grant like the NSF. This is a contract to pilot your technology. And I, it was one of those moments where I thought this was too good to be true. And that was March of 2019. We applied to uh, SBIR 19.2 and applied uh, like three months later and got the phase one and were awarded the million and a half dollar phase two later that year. Since then, we've expanded 
our footprint with the government were launched at the Naval Academy, which as West Point grad that I have mixed feelings about, but they've been actually great partners to work with. Dr. Randy Reese is the head of resiliency there, and he's been just a phenomenal partner. We've expanded into other Air Force units, Army installations, all stemming from that AFWORKS non-dilutive funding, which was everyone that's listening to this. If you The, the trick to AFWORKS, though, is that you need a technology that is commercially available. They don't want to test out brand new technologies. They don't want to be the first customer. They want to be a secondary mover. They want to be the first government customer, but not your first customer. So you need traction elsewhere to be able to get the funding. But if you have traction elsewhere, um, AFWorks is a great team to work with. Awesome. Taking a step back from all of this, do you have any reflections on the impact that federal funding programs have had? Or, you know, said another way, where do you think you'd be without having had those funding streams and programs? You could go back to even before I was starting the company, federal funding paid for my undergrad. <laughs> and then uh, federal funding paid my salary for a bunch of years in the army. From a personal standpoint, it's been really exciting and an honor to get to go back to these military units and serve them in another way, not in uniform this time, but to get to go back to my roots of the initial reason I, I started the company and to get to support them in these innovative ways. Government funding allowed that to happen. Government funding, like we've innovated the product in a bunch of ways, adding new features. We added natural language processing algorithm, which we didn't have before, all stemming from the government funding. And frankly, the government now is one of our biggest customers that I don't know if we would have been able to compete with the large Lockheed Martins and these huge government contractors if we weren't afforded the opportunity to do these pilots through these SBIR and STTR funding mechanisms. As an entrepreneur, I believe we would have figured it out anyway, because we have to, but I would be remiss if I didn't say the government didn't play some role in it. And, and I hope, and I think that they would think this too, that's a two-way street. It's a mutually beneficial thing. We benefited from their funding, and I think those units and the government is benefiting from the innovation that they helped bring to the units. Absolutely. I was wondering, could you compare, let's just say the AFWORKS 1.5, you've also gotten commercial funding. It, what, can you compare and contrast 1.5 of government versus 1.5 of venture? Yeah, I think the 1.5 of government is, for all intents and purposes, revenue. It's the best type of funding. <laughs> if you could fund your company just through revenue, do that 100% of the day. Uh, you know, it's the best type of revenue because it's revenue from a customer that is invested in your success with the transparency with each other that this is going to be a bumpy road we're going to figure it out together and and they want to matriculate that success as much as you do again going back to the question of you know the nsf funding that's really more of a true and true grant because it's meant to re do research and so forth nsf wasn't going to commercialize neuroflow afterwards afworks funding is a contract and with the intent of moving that to a phase three contract, which is a full blown, more standard, regular 1.5 million in venture funding can be helpful in a lot of ways, especially if you get the right partners. 
but that's a big if. And it comes with a lot of strings attached. You lose a little bit of control. Now you have to answer to somebody. You lose, I shouldn't say you, you don't, to say you lose a portion of the company, I think would be inaccurate because you're selling a portion of the company for the million and a half, but you no longer own a portion of the company. All of those don't exist, obviously, when you're funding the company just through sales and that sort of thing. Can you share a little bit about where you, what the future looks like? Hugely um, exciting time for digital health, for innovations, and for mental health specifically. Again, looking back five years ago when we were first starting this company to today where we have millions of users across the spectrum with health systems, health plans, and government. I'm thrilled to think about what the future holds for us with the impact that we could continue to make. We've been expanding with the Air Force. We just moved into the Army. We're always looking to continue to innovate, explore, expanding our footprint with other VA medical centers with other Air Force units, with the Army, Navy, and the Marine Corps, obviously. One of the things that we got because of the government pilots that we did was working with us is easy. A benefit of going through the SBIR program is we can sole source contract. So if you want to use this and you have the funding, we can just go and we can like make, make magic happen together. Anyone can find us at neuroflow.com and we'd love to connect. That was Chris Malaro from Neuroflow. And we know how hard it is to work with the federal government. So for more stories and resources, check out fedscout.com.